Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We've seen that in virtually any Buddhist community, we can distinguish two kinds of Buddhist practice and understanding living side by side. The first is adept Buddhism a refined practice and understanding cultivated to maintain an authentic dharma aimed at the perfection of human character culminating in awakening. The second is folk Buddhism, a popular understanding and practice accrued to include many compromises, simplifications, and misunderstandings of Buddhist practice and understanding strongly influenced by the prevailing folk culture that includes things like ancestor worship, various kinds of blessings, and other priestly services, and appeasing tree spirits, not reflective of the Buddha's teachings. The distinction between adept and folk Buddhisms can account for how resilience exists alongside malleability, in the sasana. That is, how the integrity of authentic Buddhism tends to be preserved in spite of the free-ranging nature of folk Buddhism. That is, in the midst of a multiplicity of understandings and misunderstandings, practices and malpractices. I hope that by recognizing this distinction, we will better understand the history of the sasana and resolve much of the interminable back and forth between Theravada and Mahayana, Eastern and Western, early and traditional, secular and religious, and other dichotomies we tend to read into Buddhism. Adept Buddhism is orthodox in upholding its basis in a singular attainment, and is therefore not nearly so subject to innovation, and to culture-specific understandings, trends, or fads as folk Buddhism. This means also that adept Buddhists are very likely to share most of their understandings and practices with adept Buddhists of other lands, cultures, traditions, and eras, and so to possess what is most universal about Buddhism. But even adept Buddhism has an orthodox core and a more adaptable outer layer. The most highly orthodox core is the monastic code and practice, the Vinaya, which has been observed in monastic communities everywhere Buddhism has spread with little alteration. Effectively, the monastic Sangha is the linchpin of the sasana in the Buddha's design. The outer layer is the Dharma which is itself, very gradually over time, shaped by the local culture, since its adepts sometimes adapt, but always in a deliberate manner, expressions of that culture into their adept understanding or practice. 
while preserving functional authenticity. A primary example of a later cultural intrusion into adept Buddhism comes from the Far East, as the fashioning of formal and ritual elements under Confucian influence into the Buddhist practice of mindfulness to very good effect. You find this influence, for instance, in Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings. A result has been that Buddhists of different traditions rarely agree on the contents of their respective scriptural corpora, most of which have been composed well after the time of the Buddha, such as the Lotus Sutra or the Smoky the Bear Sutra. However, since Buddhism is a practice tradition, monastics practice, and the Dharma is there only to serve practice, I maintain that the Dharma has, by and large, maintained its integrity in its adept understanding in spite of an expanding scriptural corpus. So, given that resilience is a prominent property of adept Buddhism, with a significant degree of adaptability over the centuries, let's turn to folk Buddhism, where the bulk of the malleability comes from. This malleability is reasonably at least partially responsible for the sasana's ability to project itself beyond cultural boundaries and for its status as the first world religion predating Christianity and Islam and the remaining two world religions. Far from being a perverse anomaly, folk Buddhism plays a necessary role in the sasana. First, folk Buddhism overlaps with adept Buddhism. Its defining characteristic is not spuriousness, but its relative popularity among the general Buddhist population. Much of adept Buddhism attains that popularity. Witness the current relative popularity of Buddhist meditation practice among average folks in Western Buddhism and in much of Asian Buddhism, especially in Burmese Buddhism. Meditation in the long history of Zen in East Asia similarly invited significant folk participation. Second, It is folk Buddhism that makes Buddhism comprehensible for most Buddhists and virtually all non-Buddhists. Particularly as Buddhism enters a new culture, it is folk Buddhism that softens the clash of cultures and mediates the give and take that can bring those into harmony. It is the oil between the piston and cylinder, the wheel between axle and road. We see that folk Buddhism is a necessary part of a healthy Buddha sasana. Third, folk Buddhism holds adept Buddhism in high regard and is drawn toward approximating it. It should also be noted that adepts are typically conversant with local folk Buddhism, having typically been raised as folk Buddhists before becoming adepts. They are effectively bi-religious. When some of Suzuki Roshi's American students traveled back to, to Japan with him, they found him engaged with Japanese folk Buddhists in a way that was quite distinct from what they had learned from him, and in fact incomprehensible to them. 
Although he imparted adept Buddhism in America, he could also become a Japanese folk Buddhist on demand, keeping the two Buddhisms separate in his own mind, alongside the two languages he used to render them. Other adepts seem to have more trouble knowing where adept Buddhism stops and folk Buddhism begins. This is rarely a problem as long as there is no contradiction between the two or until one is required to teach Buddhism outside of one's own culture. I suspect that the Asian masters who became successful teachers in the West, such as Suzuki Roshi and Chogyam Trungpa, are by and large those best able to keep their Buddhism straight. In a nutshell, the folk Buddhism is served by the adepts because of folk demand. But in a real sense, the adepts, to the extent that they are venerated players in folk Buddhist life, have the opportunity to shape that folk Buddhism to at least ensure consistency with adept Buddhism. If adept Buddhism is resilient and folk Buddhism is malleable, what holds these two Buddhisms together? Adept and folk Buddhism are like a comet, adept representing the head and folk the tail trailing behind. Folk Buddhism is tethered to adept Buddhism by refuge, by veneration of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, even by those who have little idea of what their message is. As Buddhists who have taken refuge in the Triple Gem Those in the tale know in which direction the head is found and are open in heart and mind to the strengthening and shaping influence of adept Buddhism. Folk Buddhism is not Buddhism in decay, eaten at by the prevailing folk culture. Rather, it is something suspended between countervailing forces. The domestication of adept Buddhism and the wilds of the folk culture, and in the internal process of reconciling itself with both. Refuge keeps folk Buddhism firmly under the influence of adept Buddhism and lends authority to the word of the adepts. Ideally, folk Buddhism is strongly conditioned by admirable friendship, sustained through close and frequent association with the example of adepts. Most folk Buddhists are not well informed about Dharma, but if they decide they would like to pursue Buddhist practice more deeply, they know where to go to learn about it. In brief, the Buddha Sasana works in three ways. First, the refuges established Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha as primary sources of wisdom and inspiration. This leans us all toward Dharma even as we may also individually come under the many, often unwholesome, influences alive in any culture. Second, the community provides opportunities for optimal practice for those of highest aspiration. As a result, noble ones walk among us, and we are all ennobled by their inspiration. Third, the presence of an adept community of noble ones, trainees, and scholars 
ensures the preservation and propagation of an authentic dharma. Folk Buddhism is therefore drawn into rough consistency with adept Buddhism. As fads and fashions come and go, this relationship ensures that trends that run counter to Buddhist values are noted, admonished, or nipped in the bud. A healthy folk Buddhism is one that is relatively consistent with adept Buddhism in the values and practices it promotes, but generally represents a much simpler understanding, often bordering on misunderstanding in practice, rarely bordering on malpractice, with many admixtures and oft-times distortions that originate in the embedding folk culture. This is much like the popular relationship of general folks to science. For instance, if I don't have much of an understanding of how the weather works, I might have some odd notions about it and even share these with other people. If someone argues with me, we generally have a way to resolve the disagreement. Look it up or ask an expert. If I habitually refuse to be corrected by the experts in such matters, my understanding will degrade as it loses its mooring in science and floats off into supposition and superstition. It's more normal in our society to defer to scientists as authorities and thereby at least open ourselves to an improved understanding of science. Similarly, the folk Buddhist will defer to adepts lest he float off in a wildly devotionally cultic bubble. In short, the adepts occupy the soapbox. It's inevitable in folk Buddhism that, alongside some proper understandings of authentic teachings, there will also be naive misunderstandings. For instance, that there's a soul or a fixed self that acquires merit through good deeds, and that nirvana is a particularly felicitous realm where that self can be reborn to dwell forever. It's likewise common in folk Buddhism to seek protection from outrageous fortune in amulets or in special chants or in the simple presence of monks or nuns. Folk Buddhism is highly conditioned by the embedding culture as well as by universal human needs. Many Asian cultures had a strong animist and shamanistic influence since before the advent of Buddhism, and these have since become blended with Buddhism in the popular mind. In East Asia, for instance, ancestor worship is very much integrated into folk Buddhism, with its many traditional expressions such as the symbolic burning of money. Folk Buddhism serves as a middle way between adept Buddhism and the general embedding folk culture, and it is an enduring part of a healthy sasana. A particularly striking example of folk Buddhism is Pure Land Buddhism, which has been a huge movement over many centuries in East Asia, but which is also widely criticized as promoting an inauthentic devotional path of practice, the Nian Fo, the invocation of the name of Amitabha Buddha, with the promise of rebirth in the Western Pure Land as the primary goal. 
what sets off alarms for the adept or reasonably literate Buddhist is the appeal to an external power for salvation, bypassing the Buddhist teaching of karma that our own deeds determine our attainments. Pure land's appeal to a higher power has been compared to the Abrahamic faiths and has provided a sitting duck for Theravadans who seek to disparage the Mahayana, for indeed it represents a large portion of the entirety of Mahayana practice throughout East Asia. The point I want to make here is that pure land is folk Buddhism, pure and simple, and not an adept form of Buddhism. The only thing that makes pure land distinct from other folk Buddhist understandings and practices is its immense popularity and its organization as a movement with an independent identity. On the one hand, the Pure Land movement has the hallmarks of folk Buddhism, its single-focused practice, more suitable for lay folks who devote less time to practice, its strongly devotional quality, its easy answer, easily comprehended and implemented approach, and its popular appeal. For much of its history in China, it has been promoted through specifically lay organizations often called White Lotus Societies, and grown through proselytizing by the laity among the laity. On the other hand, the Pure Land Movement does not seem to be a cultic bubble that has dislodged itself from adept Buddhism. The Pure Land has historically almost never been a separate school, but has rather taken hold within and across non-Pure Land schools that have sustained an adept Buddhism alongside the folk Buddhism of of Pure Land. For instance, scholars make out no commonly recognized monastic lineage of Pure Land patriarchs, analogous to that found in Zen, Tendai, or other major schools in East Asia. And many of the monastic names historically associated with Pure Land, the Pure Land patriarchs, turn out to be affiliated with non-Pure Land schools, like Zen. Even today, the Zen-Pure Land syncretism is the norm for Chinese temples. In short, Pure Land is a folk Buddhist practice almost always tethered to and recognizing the authority of an adept Buddhism. Like many folk Buddhist practices and understandings, Pure Land has been promoted within the various adept-centered schools, even by and for monastics, as a part of a healthy sasana. Its existence is no more evidence for the inauthenticity of some part of Mahayana Buddhism than the belief in forest spirits is for the inauthenticity of Burmese Buddhism, or for that matter, than the widespread belief in creationism in America is for the backwardness of American science. It seems to me that there is a good example of what happens when this allegiance of folk Buddhism to adapt Buddhism through refuge is weakened. In East Asia by the 12th or 13th century, the teaching was widely endorsed that Buddhism 
had entered its final stage of decline. The age of decline, mofa in Chinese, mappo in Japanese, meant it was harder, if not impossible, for monastics to maintain discipline, for yogis to attain jhana, or for the dedicated and devout to attain any semblance of awakening. Mofa led to two divergent attitudes toward practice, short of dismissing the teaching altogether. The first was to intensify one's efforts to overcome the Mofa handicap. The other was to lower one's expectations, to make do with practices that would fall short of the aspirations of old, yet would be manageable and of some minimal efficacy. In short, the three responses to the age of decline were try harder, don't bother, or balderdash. The don't bother attitude may have encouraged the popularity of Pure Land Buddhism and the practice of calling on the external aid of Amitabha Buddha. Dogen Zenji, historically Japan's greatest Zen master, was of the balderdash sentiments during this period, but advocated trying harder anyway. The monk Honan, the founder of Pure Land in Japan during this period, and Nichiren, founder of a school that bears his name, were of the don't-bother persuasion. As a result, Pure Land in Japan became a distinct school, the Jodoshu, not tethered to adept understandings, and discarded all scriptures except the original vow of Amitabha. Adherents were expected to devote themselves to the single-minded devotional folk practice of reciting the name of Amitabha Buddha. Honan's successor, the monk Shinran, decided he wanted to get married, and therefore founded an order of married clergy, known as the Jodo Shinshu. For many centuries, the Jodo Shinshu would be the bane of the Japanese Buddhist clergy, until a married priesthood became the norm throughout Japanese Buddhism, beginning with a Meiji government anti-Buddhist edict of 1872 that sought to suppress the traditional clerical structure in Japan in favor of the Jodo Shinshu model, and succeeded. We'll stop here. Next week, I want to say some words about Western Buddhism and how it falls in terms of the adept folk model I've just discussed. The following week, I intend to begin a new series talking about the Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, the basis of insight or vipassana meditation, and an extremely critical teaching of the Buddha for those who wish to attain full awakening. I've been doing some rethinking about how the Satipatthana is traditionally understood.